the narrative we spin, it doesn't matter what other people say, it doesn't matter how the culture changes, some things are right and some things are wrong. And as Christians, if we do not have enough strength and conviction for our Lord and Savior and for the Word, then what we will find is we are constantly moving, constantly changing our definition of right. Not based on what God says, but what man says. And in fact, I think part of the reason this resonated with me is it's a sentiment that comes from Scripture. In Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God warns us about that as times change, as sin incorporates itself more and more into our culture, that we will live in a place that calls things not just good or bad or okay, they will actually flip-flop. They will look at what is evil and say, no, that is good. And if you stand for good in those moments, they won't just push you to the side. They will actually go, no, you, you are wrong. And so all this month, which to be honest, June used to be one of my favorite months. It's the month of Father's Day. It's the month of my wife's birthday. It's the start of summer. All this month, I have felt like we've been being told that something right is something, I'm sorry, something wrong is something right. And it starts with this concept of Pride Month. Now, I encourage you, as some of you sit there, and some of you may be visitors, that you go, oh, here we go. A Baptist minister is going to bash homosexuality and spread hate speech. Before you form those opinions, I wish that you would listen. Because, to be honest with you, I think this is one of those topics where the narrative that we see in culture is so far from the truth that it's hard to get right back to what people really are talking about. But the real issue is at hand. All this month, though, I was shocked at how much this has become part of our society. I mean, over the years, it's been growing and growing and growing, but now it feels like no matter what you do during this month, you're going to see it. Here were just some examples I ran through this month. So Target, stand with us for our pride. Oreo, wanted to make sure that we know they stand for gay pride cookies. Uh, United We Win was Under Armour's push, if you go to the Under Armour website. United we win. Don't you love the, the, the words, too? Everything's so positive and affirming. Gap, celebrating love always since 1969. Even when I turn to some of the things that I've traditionally gone to to avoid politics, like sports, I was surprised to see the same thing. Our United States soccer team, the United States national team that's supposed to represent the entire nation. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're conservative or liberal, whether you're Christian or atheist, that team is supposed to represent everyone. And during this month, they're running around with rainbow numbered colored jerseys. Because they want to show that they're proud of this behavior. If you turn on baseball, a lot of baseball teams had their pride flags playing or had their logos in the pride flag colors, which are the rainbow colors. Same with soccer and, and many other sports that are going on right now. Something that used to be not about politics, used to be some kind of entertainment where you could escape some of those issues, now clearly embracing the side of an argument. And I think to me the thing that scares me so much about this topic is, is the way everything is presented. Right? This really isn't about tolerance. This is about you should be proud of it. That if you're homosexual, if you're transgender, if you're any part of the LGBTQI, 
letters that you are brave, that you're courageous, that you're powerful, and that you're showing other people how to live. And if you look at all the messaging, it doesn't tell you that there's any two sides to the argument. There's only one side. Us being loving, us being compassionate, us being united, us being proud. And if you do not agree with this, if you stand on the other side of that, that is not an opinion that you are allowed to publicly have. And in fact, if you express it, what you typically will hear is that you are full of hate. That you are a bigot. For me, I experienced this a lot during college. During college, even at Wayland Baptist University, I would often find myself in classes where part of the way things would work is you would debate. Right? The professor would put out a topic that he knew was controversial, and then to see how people would grow and change their philosophies, you'd have different groups who kind of argue. I often found myself to be the only one that would say I believed homosexuality to be a sin. And I was always amazed at how quickly the conversation would turn so unbelievably emotional. And I was no longer allowed to just have this simple view that I thought that this action was wrong. I was immediately be calling hateful, a bigot, somebody who thought he was God, somebody who could told other people how to live, someone who wanted to restrict other people's rights. And I was just trying to say, like, no, I just disagree with the lifestyle. And so the first thing I wanted to talk about today was this concept of hate. When we say that because you disagree with someone's lifestyle that you hate them, let's just be very honest about if that's fair or not. If we're clear, the Bible has a lot of opinions about a lot of behaviors. The Bible doesn't think lying is right. The Bible doesn't think eating drunk is right. The Bible doesn't think having sex before marriage is right. The Bible doesn't think stealing or greed or coveting other people's things or many of these other things are right. God says all those things are sin. Hate, if we go by the definition of the word, is to have a passionate dislike for somebody. So much so that you wish to inflict pain upon them. Is that really the same thing as having a disagreement with somebody? Is that really the same thing as saying, I don't think what you're doing is right? But I also find it very interesting about this narrative of us being hateful if we disagree on this topic, is we don't say that for everything else. If my coworker wants to lie to his boss, our boss, about what we did that week, and I say, I don't think you should lie, I don't think that's good. My coworker doesn't look at me and go, you're hateful. Why do you hate me? Right, no, we would just go, oh, we're disagreeing. They think lying's appropriate in this space, I don't. We're having a disagreement about what's the right action. But it doesn't suddenly find us in a place where they now believe I hate their guts. Right, think about how many things God's word speaks on that even yourself you don't always fulfill. I can tell you almost every single commandment I've broken. I don't even want to know how many I broke this week. Does that mean I hate myself because I disagree with some of my own actions? I don't think so. And so I want you to be careful because here, here's the hard thing. When you're behind enemy lines and you hear a story being told to you over over and over and over and over again. It gets really hard to fight that story. Did you ever as a kid 
so buy into a lie that you were telling your parents that you started to actually believe it? Did you ever have that happen? Where you were so set in stone that this thing happened and it was the excuse you were making to not get in trouble, but like after an hour of holding on to that lie, you actually started going like, wait, that, that is what happened, right? My mom always tells this story about how she would tell her uh, friends that her grandpa was John Wayne because her grandpa really loved John Wayne. And she said at one point, she had said it so many times, she started to wonder like, wait, is he? <laughs> she just got so used to saying that, that it had kind of become part of the stereotype that twisted in her head. And so what I want you guys to be careful of is you're gonna hear this and we're not gonna change this. If you live in this culture, you're going to hear that if you think homosexuality is a sin, you're hateful. And I don't think we can change that story. I just don't. But what I want to be careful of is that you don't get swayed. That you plant yourself by the river of truth that is God's word. And that even when you hear that narrative, even when you hear that attack, you know in your heart, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I don't have a wild dislike for these folks. I don't wish ill upon their lives. I just simply have disagreement with them on whether or not their lifestyle is appropriate. And brothers and sisters, some of you may sit here and go, well, why are we even talking about this? There's so many sins out there. Why do pastors always pick on this one? But let me just tell you why. Well, there are many different sins out there, and many that are wrong. This is the only one I know of that we currently have a month where we celebrate that sin. And not only do we celebrate that sin, we tell people to be proud of that sin, to fight for that sin, to defend that sin, and to silence anybody who calls it a sin. That scares me. Right? It's one thing for us to have an argument, and you go, okay, I stand here, and you stand here. It's another for us to go as a whole nation. They're right, you're wrong, we're all standing here. You need to shut up or change. It's a different fight. It's a different fight. The other reason that you hear pastors so often talk about this is, remember what we talked about just a couple weeks ago. Our mission is to go outside these doors and to make disciples. To go make disciples. And if you're going to share the gospel with people, do you know where the first place is you have to start? That they're lost they're sinners and that they need to be saved. The story of a Savior who sacrificed everything to pull you out of death and bring you into life only is significant if you yourself believe you need to be saved. If you don't think you need to be saved, if you don't believe that you're a sinner, then the story of someone sacrificing to save you, you go, well, gee, that was nice but unnecessary. I mean, I'm glad you care about me like that, but I don't need that. So, so no thank you. The terrifying thing to me about this month is not the particular sin. It's that we're calling it not sin. And we're teaching an entire generation that something that is wrong is right. Something that they don't need to repent of. Something that they don't need to turn away from. But instead it's actually something they should celebrate. And so when your whole mission is to try to bring people to Christ, wiping out that first starting point is hard. It undercuts the entire mission. 
which is why we focus on this. I mean, well, I know individuals who believe lying is right. There is not a, you know, the month of lying pride, right? We don't have that, right? January is not lying month. Everybody be proud of the lies you tell. Lie, lie, lie. It's good. It doesn't happen. We don't stand and say that wrong thing. Actually, we think that's right. And so the first thing I want you to take with you is I don't believe it's fair to call disagreement hate. In fact, I think this is one of the bigger problems we have in the entire nation right now, is that we believe if we do not completely and utterly align on things, then we cannot be friends. We can't have a respectful conversation. We can't show each other care. We can't do that. The other day, I, I won't share names, but one politician on one side called another politician on the other side a nice guy. He said, I don't, I don't agree with all of his opinions. I uh, definitely don't agree with his policies, but you know, he, he's, a, he's a nice guy. He got so blasted by his own party that he had to come out and retract that and go, never mind, not a nice guy. <laughs> how are we going to, how do you survive in a nation like how do we think we're going to get anything done where if we politically don't agree, I'm not even allowed to call you a nice human being? That's where we currently stand. And so the first thing I want you to take is throw that story out. Just realize that is a narrative twist. It doesn't base itself in truth. Disagreeing with people is not hate. In fact, I think if you have family members, you probably know this very well. There are probably people you love immensely that you have huge disagreements with. Nicole thinks Taco Bell is bad food. I think it's fantastic. I still love her more than any other human being on this planet. I don't understand why she thinks Taco Bell is bad, but she does. And I make light of that, but let's be real, right? If you love people and you have them in your life, probably even the people you love the most, do you have some big things you disagree on? Sure. But that's not you hate them. Second, let's talk about hating. I always love when people want to say conservative Christians who hold to the Bible are hateful. Because to do that means you're skipping what God actually says about hate. So I wanted to just break that down a little bit and look at what God says about even the concept of us hating. Not just for this topic, but any topic, period. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 6 with me. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, you're going to find yourself in the middle of a, a sermon that's very well known. But in this sermon, Jesus is talking about the concept of love and how love is this centrality of Christianity. And in verse 27, he says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold from him your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? 
For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So, so let's, let's separate the two things that I said. I said, first off, I don't believe us thinking homosexuality is a sin means we hate people who disagree with us. I don't think that's a valid argument. But let's even say that them believing that made us enemies. Let's say that made us enemies. I don't believe it does, but let's say it did make us enemies. What do the words of Jesus Christ say that you and I are to do with our enemies? To love them. To love them. See, Christ's point is, I have told you that the greatest commandment is to love. Remember in Matthew chapter 22 when they come to him and they're testing him and they're asking him difficult questions and they say, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, upon all the law and all the prophets, which is referring to scripture, that's what they called it back then, they called it the Bible, they called it the law and the prophets. He says, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two things. So basically, Jesus' point is, our whole faith is built on love. It's built on this joyful sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. And what he says is, if that's to be true, if you're to be my disciples, if we're to be his disciples, when we go out and love is going to be the hallmark of our lives, our calling card, well then we need to love in a strange way. We need to love in a weird way. I always tell this, I want you guys to kind of be weirdos. Right? You need to be weirdos. And the reason you need to be weirdos is this. If you blend in with everybody else, then does that show that Jesus makes a difference? No. You want to be those people who work differently, live differently, have different kinds of marriages, raise your children differently, do everything in a different way. So people go, that's weird. And then the follow-up question will be like, Why? And you go, Jesus, the reason I'm so weird to you is because you've built your life off these values of this culture. I have built mine off the word of God. And that's what makes me different. And so what God's saying about this topic of love is, I want you to be weird in the way you love. And so wake up. If you guys just love those who love you, what does that say? I mean, if you will study mafia people, if you will study hardened criminals, if you will study even sometimes serial killers, do you know what will strike you as weird? Often, their closest people in their lives were like, they were great to me. They were kind to me. They were loving to me. They were nice to me. Great husband, great father, great friend. Why? It's because what he's saying here. In our world, we typically reciprocate what we get. So if somebody comes into your life and they're kind and they're compassionate and they're loving, guess what you naturally want to be? Kind and considerate and loving. And Jesus' point is, look, all these things, being kind, giving money to those in need, helping those who are in need, 
Doing that to people you like is easy. Everyone does that. Only the most cruel and evil people don't do that. So if you're going to show people that my love is different, if you're going to go into the world and you're going to show people that the love of Jesus Christ makes you strange, then the way you do that is you love those who hate you. To those that are your enemies, to those that want to wipe you off the face of the earth, to those that are there to curse you and push you away, to those that have no business in your life, that everybody else would tell you you should get rid of them. You love those people. Because that will show you're different. That will show you mine. And so brothers and sisters, when people want to come to us and say, because we think something is sin, we hate them. Well, that's just us choosing to ignore most of Scripture. God never encourages us to hate people. Even, in fact, your mortal enemies, he says, you should be praying for them and you should be loving them. Caring for them. And why I want you to hold to that truth, brothers and sisters, is because I want you to be aware that you can disagree with people and still pray for them. Still serve them. Still hope to make their lives better. Still be there as someone who's trying to make their world better. But we can be loving even when the world tells us we should be hateful. In 1 John 2 9, it says, Whoever says he is the light and hates his brother, it is still darkness. Right? God equates this love that he has with the light of the world. And sin and hate is darkness. And God's call to you is to be light. In fact, he tells us that we are supposed to be that light that cannot be overcome by the darkness. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to find this ground where I can stand firmly and say, no, I, I stand with the word of God. I still love you. I still love you. And in fact, what I would tell you, brothers and sisters, is standing by the word of God and letting them know what they're doing is wrong is actually one of the best ways to show love. If you have ever raised children, you know this fact. Raising children is not about, with compassion and kindness, permitting them to do whatever they want. How quickly would your child be off the face of this earth if you allowed them to do whatever they wanted? Can you imagine? I think Jake would have made it to the moment he could crawl. If I would just allow Jake to do whatever he wanted, Jake would be in the hospital or dead like every day. Because that's just Jake. He takes risks, he finds the most dangerous way to do things, the most difficult way to do things. That's just the way his head works. And I love that little boy, but I gotta spank that rear end quite a bit. Because I gotta teach him, son, you can't do that. You get hurt. Son, you can't do that, that's wrong. Son, if you keep doing this, it's not gonna work. I'll be real with you. I never believed my father when he would spank me and tell me, this hurts me more than you. I was a liar. <laughs> I don't think you know how hard you're spanking. But I can tell you now on the other end, I get it. I despise disciplining them. Especially there are days where, like, you know, you come home late, you 
you've got plans to do something fun with them, you want to make this great fun day, and then they're just, you know those days that there's something in the water, where just, they just want to disobey? And there's those days you get home and you're just like, all I wanted to do was have fun, but I guess we're doing this. And there's those days where sometimes I'm tempted to just be like, okay, I'm just going to ignore it, just going to ignore it, and let's move on, and guess what? You can't. You gotta sacrifice your plans, you gotta sacrifice the joy, you gotta sacrifice the easy path and go, because I love you, because I care about you, because I want you to grow up healthy, and because I want you to grow up to be a person that everybody else doesn't think you're a jerk, we have to discipline in this moment. And so, brothers and sisters, there's also this idea that we somehow show love to people who are lost, who don't know Jesus, who are living in sin. And we show them love by going, you're doing great. Everything's awesome. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's not love. That's not love. If after church today, you saw me out on 181 and Jake was running down the middle of the highway, and I'm like, go, son, go. Would any of you be like, what a loving father. <laughs> that guy's amazing. No, you'd be like, that guy, take the child away from that man. You would not think I was loving in any way, shape, or form. You'd think I was an idiot. You'd think I was dangerous. And you'd question whether or not I should have that child in my house. And you'd be right to do those things. And so, brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you, and we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about what love is, us standing by the word of God and sharing it is not hateful. It may be difficult. It may be uncomfortable. But it's not hateful. I always love this one because I think one of the things that outsiders sometimes think about the church is, is that we think we're better than everybody. I think they, they see our moral code that we get from the Bible. And they think by us standing, by what the word says, that what we're saying is, I do all this. I'm better than you. That's not the case. What church is is a bunch of mess-ups coming together going, hi, I'm a mess-up. I need help because I know I'm going to mess up. I need to constantly be told what the right way to go is because if I am not, I'll go the wrong way. And I need a group of people around me who will also help me stay going the right way because if I don't have that accountability, I will veer off the right path. I've said this before. This is a glorified AA meeting. It's just here we're not trying to acknowledge that there's only one type of sin. We're acknowledging that just because you're not an alcoholic, just because you're not addicted to drugs, doesn't mean you're not addicted to sin. And here, we're not trusting in some philosophy. We are trusting in the Savior of the world to come and wipe away what has got our whole hearts and souls. And so I think some people, though, they hear us stand by what God says, not what we say. They go, you think you're better than me. You're saying you don't have any flaws. No, I may be more messed up than you. I just have a really great physician. I have a really great Lord. And to be honest, it's kind of like a toddler mom. I just keep walking, making a mess. He's just right there behind me, cleaning up as I go. I got that, Luke. Let me take care of that. Oh, you messed up again. Let me take care of that. Oh, you I got that one for you, too. And Paul addresses this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. What's Paul saying? He's saying that long list of things. That's all sin. It's all wrong. It's all bad. And we have to acknowledge that it's wrong. We have to acknowledge that it's sin. We have to acknowledge that it's bad. But do we still love those people? Yes, because in fact, most of us are those people. We're the same. We struggle with sin too. We fail all the time. We just acknowledge it. So brothers and sisters, the thing I want you to hold on to, the thing I want you to be confident in, Christianity is not a place for hate. And to stand by the word of God and call what he calls right, right, what he calls wrong, wrong, does not make you a hateful bigot. My prayer for you is that every single person you encounter in your life would see that you are a loving person. Not loving in the kind sense, but loving in that they would truly believe you are the type of person that would be willing to sacrifice for their benefit. You would sacrifice for their benefit. You do that with joy. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you kind of a, a, a picture of what that looks like. If you have your Bibles, flip to John chapter 7. While you're doing that, I just said something dumb. I said this was a glorified A meeting. That would make AA meetings better than this. This is AA meetings are not better than this. <laughs> In Luke chapter 7, I think we get one of the most beautiful pictures of what it looks like. I'm sorry, John. Yes. Of what it looks like to hold firm to something being wrong but still showing love. And actually, we'll start in verse 1 chapter 8. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and said when he set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him. So they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The context of this story is just beautiful to me. 
It's beautiful because of the complexity. It's beautiful because of how much is going on. There's some things that you, you have to infer. There's some things that you have to kind of guess. But even if they're not completely there, the, the midst of the word hits profoundly for us. What many assume is for these men to have caught the woman in the very act. Probably means this was kind of a setup. They probably knew of this relationship or they made this relationship happen. They had to know the place and location so that they could catch these two doing what should not be done. And where the setup is interesting is, according to the law of Moses, both parties would need to be brought before for judgment. But notice they only bring the woman. And they throw this woman at Jesus' feet. And notice he knows their heart. Their heart was not to get to the bottom of her adultery. Their desire was to put Jesus in a difficult spot. The thought process was, Jesus is this friend of sinners. Right? If you look throughout the New Testament, one of the things the Pharisees despised about Jesus is when the Pharisees, the holy men, would run into the common folk, they would keep their distance. Why? Because we're righteous. We know God's word. We live by God's word. We will not be soiled by your sin. You stay away from us. Well, Jesus shows up, preaches the exact same word, but instead of keeping everybody at arm lengths, he's right there with them. In fact, one of the things that made them most angry is he would dare to go into sinners' houses and eat with them. Who does that? And so this, this hate they had for his love for the common people, they thought, let's trap him. We'll bring one of these precious common folk, we'll throw him at his feet, and he's going to have to choose either to abide by the law of Moses, which will have her killed, and let's see him spin that as he's the champion of the common folk. Right? Jesus, so loving, so compassionate, yet had a common woman stoned and killed. Or, he'll tell us not to do it, and then we go, oh, so this is the Son of God who thinks the laws of Moses are a joke. This is your Messiah? This is the one that God sends who doesn't even stand by what his Father says? I thought it was a perfect trap. See, Jesus knows all these things. And I love how he disarms everything. He's just so brilliant. This is why I love following him. I mean, how many of us in that moment, knowing those things, would have gotten into a shouting match? Instead, when they come in in the middle of his lesson, in the middle of the temple, throw this woman to the ground, make this boisterous statement, does he respond with the fire that they do? No. In fact, this is one of the beautiful things you kind of see throughout Scripture. Right? Don't always respond with what you're given. I always tell my children this. Like, if you're at school and a friend looks at you and says, you're an idiot, your natural desire is to look at them back and go, no, you're an idiot. Right? I mean, that's just kind of how it works. Can you have enough self-control, though, in that moment so that just responding with that emotion go, no, I'm not going to do that. Not participating in this battle. And Jesus stoops to the ground and he starts drawing, starts writing. Everybody always wants to know what did he draw, what did he write. No, no, I don't think it mattered. I think the point in that moment is, well, all eyes have been on this woman who's probably half naked, probably crying, probably completely ashamed of what's happening. The moment that Jesus steps and starts drawing in the dirt, where do you think all the eyes move? Right on him. And 
and all this fire, all this anger, all this rage that had been filling the crowd, now everybody's just watching him going, what, what's he doing? And what I love about Jesus is, is because he knows the complexity of the situation, he just pushes it right back on them. Uh, so you thought this was an either or. All right, gentlemen, well, if we want to get all technical about the Old Testament law, let's do that. Whichever one of you thinks that you're without sin, that you can stand judged by those laws just the same as her, go ahead. Pick up a stone and throw it at him. And he sits back down. Right, he doesn't give an answer. He puts the challenge right back to them. And the brilliance of it, I love this little detail. It says, one by one they started to leave, starting with who? The oldest. Because the oldest, as they start in their wisdom to think about what he's just done, realize, I can't do this. Can I stand here publicly in the temple, surrounded by these people, and say, I am without sin? Or do I want to do that? What would be done to my reputation if I proclaimed that in this scenario and then somebody can bring something up? One by one, these men drop their stones and they leave. And all that's left is Jesus and this woman. And to be honest, this is still a huge telling point because there is one person without sin. There's one person standing there that's never committed a sin, never will commit a sin. And he could absolutely pick up a rock and throw it at her. Jesus in that moment looks at her with compassion. And he says, I will not condemn you. But then notice what he says. Go and sin no more. In that moment, Jesus exemplifies everything that we are challenged to be. To be someone that knows what God's word says, to stand by what God's word says, to defend what God's word says, but at the same time, show love. Jesus doesn't look at her and go, go, keep doing what you're doing. Live proudly. No, he acknowledges, man, you've done the wrong thing. What you're doing is sin. Just stop doing that. But I love you. Do you think that woman ever forgot that moment? Do you think that woman would ever look at Jesus and go, well, he said what I was doing was sin, so he hates me. No, I think she absolutely knew in her heart whether or not she changed her views that Jesus loved her. That Jesus, in a moment where he could have risked his own reputation, was willing to sacrifice to benefit her life. And he was able to do that while standing on God's truth. Brothers and sisters, that's the example for you and me. To find that we can know what God says, defend what God says, teach what God says, and at the same time, still be loving to those who disagree with us. In fact, that's our greatest weapon. If you want to know what normally breaks through the hardened hearts of those who disagree with us, it's when you, who have been in this disagreement for them for so long, continue to show them love. And they eventually go, what's wrong with you? You should hate me. All I've ever done is try to make your life difficult, and yet you still do nice things for me. Why? Because of Jesus. 
I was his enemy when I refused to acknowledge who he was. When I stood with a death that required my death, he put himself on that cross for me. When I was his enemy, he loved me so much, he died for me. And so as his child, as his follower, that's what I try to do in my life. Same thing. To show people I love them, even if I disagree with them. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this month. I want to encourage you to be people that when these conversations come your way, that you don't back down. That you don't shrink away from the opportunity to talk about what you believe. But also to remember in those moments when you do that, do it in a way that still shows love. I'll be honest with you, I sometimes feel the heat of our country. I sometimes feel the heat of these political arguments and these, these moral arguments, and I find them sometimes almost making me more extreme. Right? When you have people coming at you regularly, calling you names, saying you're something, there's sometimes this, this human part of you that goes like, oh, you think I'm that? You want to see that? I'll show you hateful. You want hateful? I'll be hateful. we got to watch that. we got to turn that down and remember, no, I have a duty not just to be right in God's word, but also to be loving. Just like my father. Just like my Savior. Next week, we will continue talking about this, and we're going to talk about that word love. We're going to talk about what does God mean by that word. Because often what we are told in this debate is that we are the ones who are fighting love. We're often told that no, love wins out. Love will defeat hate. Love should be celebrated. Love is a good thing in all shapes and forms. I think part of the problem with that argument is we don't really know what that word means. And so I want us to dive into God's word and we'll talk about it. Two weeks from now, we will talk about what does the Bible say throughout it about homosexuality. I want you to actually know the verses. I actually want you to see what God's word has to say about it. And then uh, three weeks from now, we'll wrap up... Um, Kind of a, a weird one, but one that has always rubbed me the wrong way. We'll talk about where the rainbow actually came from and what it's supposed to represent. It's not really a symbol for what it's being used for today. It's a symbol that God created. That God established to show us his love for us. So I want you to be reminded of what that was supposed to be. And my hope for you is that this will encourage you, this will give you conviction, this will give you strength. And maybe it will give you the boldness to have some conversations in love with people that might lead to a really good dialogue. Well, I know it was kind of a curveball for y'all. For me, what I felt was, I know I'm bombarded all month with this stuff. And if you are too, I want you to be equipped. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready to have those conversations. And as we said at the beginning, to plant yourself like a tree by the river of truth, looking at the world and saying, no, you move. Because I'm not.
Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we ask you to just fill us with your spirit. Fathers, in topics like this where there can be so complex, they deal not just with black and white morality, but also relationships and people that we care about, Lord, it's so easy for us to get lost. My prayer, Lord, is that we will treasure your word, we will read your word, we will meditate on your word, and we will hold firm to it. That you, Father, in these moments of difficult conversations, will guide us and lead us in such a way that we still stand by your truth, but we do so in a way that is unbelievably loved. Father, I thank you for this family. I thank you for the gift you have given us to be surrounded by brothers and sisters in faith who are here to encourage us, support us, and remind us that even though from day to day we may feel like we're alone, we're not. We have you, the good shepherd, to lead us. And we have our brothers and sisters from the flock by our side. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we will follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.